Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of A Bigger Picture by Malcolm Turnbull. Oh, that's it. I was waiting for the subtitle. I always forget sometimes books don't have subtitles. But Malcolm Turnbull, his career spanned journalism, law, business, politics, and eventually he rose to become Prime Minister of Australia. Mm, So, as a lawyer, at the age of 28, he was defending Kerry Packer, the billionaire, getting him out of a lot of trouble. He also went against the British government in the famous spy catcher trial. So, he took on them and he beat them. And not only he was kicking ass at law by the age of 32, he went out and started his own investment banking firm, uh, doing some wild deals with Russian gold mines and internet startups. And uh, he later became a managing director at Goldman Sachs. So, after his business career, obviously, he went into politics and uh, through a bit of turmoil, he ended up being leader of opposition, got booted out and then came back as PM of Australia. So, he's obviously had a very wild journey and in this episode, we're going to go through different aspects of his wild journey and also narrate what we think from uh, some other ideas we've done in books and bring them into the story. Yeah, we haven't really done a politics book before. We haven't really done a a full genuine biography before either. Uh, What we're doing here... I guess every biography has a lot of narrative fallacy in it in terms of they're, they're picking the highlights real, not the full story. They couldn't possibly do it. Uh, although he gave it his best shot with 700 pages. Mm. Uh, it was a beast of a book. And then we're doing a narrative fallacy of the narrative fallacy. So, we're, pick, <laughs> we're picking and choosing our highlights and merging them with a whole bunch of other books. We're going to be talking about range, uh, influence, Robert Greene, 48 Laws of Power, uh, The Third Door, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big and just merge all these books together to read uh, read his narrative fallacy through our narrative fallacy. Yeah, there's a lot of narrative fallacy. There's something <laughs> it's unavoidable as human beings, right? Like There's a lot of complexity going on around the world. There's so many different random facts about every single story. We just kind of just cherry pick certain amount of facts to weave together to make a nice story. And when it is a story, it's easy to carry along with you for the ride. But in doing that, you do it at the risk of actually capturing what really happened and the complexity of, mm. of you know what happened in history. And we'll layer on top of that the hindsight bias as well. Obviously, he's writing about things that happened 30, 40 years ago. And with the, the benefits of hindsight, it seems like it all worked out for the better and that was the only way it could have ever gone. But of course, we know from books like Thinking and Bets that there's a lot more to it than that. But just as a quick uh, high-level overview, we're going to talk about his early career journey that we talked about. Uh, Then we're going to talk about a little bit of his first crack of politics and then coming back for a second crack of politics. This was a last-minute addition. Uh, We probably weren't going to do this book until we secured an interview with Big Malk. Is that what we call him? Big Malk? Big Malk. So, we secured an interview with Big Malk and we thought we should probably read this book first. So, it was a a mission to get through this book quickly before the big interview, uh, but well worth it. Malcolm Turnbull, at the age of eight years old, he was forced to go to a boarding school. His mother left him to go with a hotshot professor in New Zealand, so it was basically just him and his his dad, and his dad was struggling financially. So, he didn't come from much, but his father worked really hard to make sure that Malcolm had every opportunity in his life, and this is something that actually really drove him to, to try and achieve something. And he ended up going to Sydney Grammar School in 1967. He says that he wasn't the the best student. He said that early in his uh, schooling career, he got six percent on a Greek test, and he reckons that was just because he wrote his name on it, and mm-hmm. that was his that was the one point he got on the on the test. But then he got a, a good teacher later on. He actually ended up becoming third in the class for Greek. So I guess it highlights the importance of having a good teacher going from six percent on mm-hmm. a test to third in the class. Yeah. So he listened to his teachers that he respected and his mentors. But he also had a very extensive library at a very early age and he enjoyed reading. 
uh, all about history, not just history in itself, but how it was perceived at different times. Um, and he found a backroom full of books that were deemed out of date to everybody else. But he rummaged through them as one of his main hobbies, just reading and reading and reading through the history books. He followed his curiosity and after all, he became interested in the arts. He threw himself into debating, into acting, uh, into stage performances. He did a lot of productions that they did with their sister school. Uh, I don't know if that was just to hang out with the girls or if that's how much he loved it performing. Was. But yeah. um, but it was, either way, it's a, that's a positive. So, through very hard work, he left grammar as a senior prefect and he was filled with ambition, confidence and curiosity. So, a real young dude who's you know ready to go out there and change the world in some kind of ways and uh, his first step in this was to go to Sydney University in 1973 doing a combined arts and law degree but university wasn't the only thing he was doing. He had a lot of bunch of stuff. He started having a crack at it on the side so he always wanted to be financially free and well off so he worked really hard with his side jobs. Uh, he wrote for the university newspaper which was called the Nation Review, kind of a leftish leaning newspaper and always writing about state politics. And with these sketchy journalistic credentials and a lot of boldness, he took a big step in noticing that two of the big dogs in town in terms of journalism, Channel 9 and Radio 2SM, they didn't have a full-time state parliamentary roundsman. So he gave him a cold call to the management and persuaded them to allow him to work for $12 per radio story and $40 per Channel 9 story. So this is the point in the story where we'll inject our first interpretations here. Where This is obviously a big leap forward. He's gone from, uh, he's just writing in the university newspaper, you know, once a week he's doing a few stories that were interesting to him and he was obviously practicing his skills. But then he took that big leap and started cold calling massive journalists uh, with no journalistic credentials whatsoever aside from the fact that he wrote for his local newspaper. So that brings to mind the idea of the book. We did a fair while ago actually, The Third yeah. Door. Uh, you know, he's cold calling people. He's obviously not gone the traditional route. The traditional route would be waiting to see a job ad and then sending in your resume. He's gone a completely different route to that and just cold called the bosses with no, with no credentials whatsoever. Yeah, it's kind of like that quote, uh, the fishing's always best where the fewest go. I mean, who's cold calling management and pulling opportunities out of thin air and seeing problems that they didn't even know they had, right? And if someone's giving you that call, someone young with a bit of enthusiasm, a lot of the, the management, if they're smart, they're probably just going to say yes, uh, which they did. So Malcolm at this stage, obviously, he understood that working hard is very important. He was objectively a hard worker, but he didn't do that in of itself. He actually also spent a lot of time and energy going out there and sniffing around, looking for opportunities, chasing out new mm. things, like it says in the black swan, right? It's like If you're looking for a positive black swan, the first important thing is you need to be exposed to them. And this was the first positive black swan in Malcolm's career that um, set him apart from you know all of his university buddies. So the crux of The Third Door, that book by Alex Benayan, he takes the idea of getting into a club and applies that analogy to achieving success in that there's a couple of ways to get into the club. The first way that most people do, door number one, is they wait in line. It's a bloody long line. It goes to the end of the street, probably around the corner, even around the block. You just jump at the back of the line and wait until it's your turn to go in. Door two is if you're a VIP, if you're rich, if you've got connections, if you know somebody, maybe you can go up to the bouncer slip them something nice in their hand, they'll lift the velvet rope. (laughs) 
I was thinking of cash, not something else. But, okay, uh, <laughs> that's good. But they lift the rope and they let you in. And if you're not a VIP, you wait in line. If you are a VIP, that's that's your only two options. But Alex is saying that there is a third option. The third option is to find that other way in. Maybe you run around the back of the block. You knock on the door 60 times. You see a crack through the window. You jump in. You sneak past the bartenders under the table, uh, through the bathrooms, and eventually you sneak your way into the club. So this is sort of what Malcolm's doing here. He's not waiting in line. He's not rich. He's not a VIP. So he's found a different mm. way in. Mate, I don't know if we spoke about it this at the time, but that is exactly how I got into the uh, the Mentone pub one time when I was 16 years old trying to sneak in. The, in. in the window? No, the back door. I jumped through the, uh, the, the very back gate and snuck through the kitchen. I was already pretty drunk at the time. Yeah. I just kind of nodded to all the chefs and everything yeah. like, who's this dude? And anyway, I got in unscathed and um, I think I got booted out by the end of the night for other reasons. But <laughs> Is this a scooch story that you still haven't told? No, oh, that's, a different story. that's a different story. <laughs> But the third door as a metaphor, mate, that's bang on and we both really like it. So that was obviously a very big leap in his career. But at the same time, he was doing other stuff. So remember, he's still doing law, but obviously working very hard with all this other kind of stuff that I'd imagine all his law student mates would be like, what are you doing all this other bullshit? It's got nothing to do with being a successful lawyer, right? Which, you know, in time, we'll, we'll see uh, who had the better strategy. But at the same time, he found another job as a copywriter for an advertising agency writing ads for best and less and copy for, you know, the sale of baked beans, all this kind of stuff. I've been watching Mad Men recently. Have you ever seen it? No. It's like about the 1950s advertising agencies and copywriters and stuff. It's pretty interesting. I could see Big Malk ripping out some some nice cheesy one-liners about baked beans. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Well, he's doing that and he was also debating, going to all these debating lectures on on the side. And because of all this, right, he's got no hardly any time to do his actual law degree. Um, he wasn't going to any of the lectures, so he paid his mate 30 bucks uh, to just do all the notes in, in handwriting and he just got by in law, but uh, but not with good grades. Yeah, it's two different paths again. One path is you're doing law degree, you go to every single lecture, you go to every single class, you study hard, you read the textbooks, you take your notes, you're getting 90 plus percent on your tests and you get at the top of the class. And that probably serves you well in the very short term. But in the longer term, maybe it is someone who's going off and doing different things. They're actually practicing debating. They're actually practicing copywriting in the real world. They're actually being journalists and putting articulate stories together and then just paying their mate on the side to go to lectures for them and take notes. Yeah, so at this stage, he had quite an interesting mix of skills that made him perhaps first in a category like uh, taking from the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. In that book, it talks about uh, it's not about having the best product or being at the best of something. It's all about being first in what or first in a category. So everyone else, they're focusing on getting the high distinctions in law and being the best in that degree. But Malcolm here, he's actually got a mix of skills. He's doing debating, journalism, studying law. So he's probably the first in a category specific niche of, of these skill sets that makes him uh, you know, valuable to some people. Malcolm so far has developed a bit of a range of skills. It's still very, very early in his career. He's pretty low down on the totem pole in his in his early journalism career. But he won a Rhodes Scholarship, which is a very, very prestigious award. Not many people win that each year. And that really made him stand out. He was working at one of the papers owned by Kerry Packer, very famous Australian billionaire, um, very, very famous Australian billionaire. And that's obviously that's going to make you stand out. You win a Rhodes Scholarship. You're one of 40 people in the world to win one of the most prestigious awards. So that's going to catch the eye of your your boss's 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 boss. So going from just being a little minion, cheeky little kid, basically, in Kerry Packer's empire, he now really had a foot in the door with Kerry because Kerry was interested in him. 
and Malcolm, you took this opportunity to again look out for opportunities that were out there and you know add value to who he was employed by. So with a you know a long story short here, but we put together a business plan between Kerry Packer and another billionaire, Sir James Goldsmith, to get these two billionaires together and make them a lot of money, which they ended up taking part of. But most importantly, they thought, all right, this this kid is is he's serious. He's twenty eight. He can actually make us a lot of money. He's got a good background in law and he understands our business. So at the age of twenty eight now, Malcolm Turnbull, you know, only two years into finishing his law degree, when everyone else is doing a, a graduate course at another big law firm, he's actually the main barrister for one of the most high profile billionaires in the world. Barista or barrister, mate. I'm struggling with that. You know that. <laughs> I think he's making he's making a lot of coffees probably, but he's also doing law. <laughs> Maybe he's both. Uh, but yeah, so he's big big Kerry's uh, main barrister. So what he's done so far is he, he was building his way up in journalism. He sort of threw that aside and now he's jumped across to law and he's really killing it in law. He defended Kerry Packer against this massive case uh, called the Costigan Commission. I think Kerry Packer was up for murder somehow mm. in some convoluted way. He was probably dodging taxes and he, long story short, Malcolm got him off. And then won the case as well. Mm. And then, uh, uh, so that's his first big win. He's, he's defended Australia's biggest billionaires against one of the most famous cases here and he's done very, very well. Kerry wants him on board full time. So what Kerry used to do to all, all his employees, he made them completely dependent on him, which is uh, one of the laws of power by Robert mm. Greene uh, by memory. And the way he'd do this, he'd, he'd give them loans and, and take charge of their childcare and all these kind of things. So he had complete control and power. But Malcolm, he could have done that and been part of uh, Packer's empire, been very successful and almost certainly got rich in, in terms mm. of a secure way to get there. But he actually threw it all away and thought, all right, I'm going to actually start my own business here and negotiate a deal with Kerry as my first client and get the 850 grand a year there. But that means I can go out there. I've got more freedom and autonomy and can more importantly take on other clients. Yeah, it's an interesting way to do it. You've got an offer from one of the richest guys in Australia to become a full-time employee, very, very well paid, probably a pretty safe career, but he saw the risks that came with that and decided instead of the security of the job, he decided to make a uh, business with him and one of, a couple of his mates who were also lawyers. First client was Kerry, so he's probably making similar amounts of money. Kerry's saving a shitload of money and he's free then to go and do other things. And one of those other things that came along was called the Spy Catcher Trial. Now, apparently, this was the most famous law case in Australian history, and it turned out to be their first client besides Packer, uh, and it was about this guy. He used to be a spy for the UK government, and then he wrote this story uh, that was a book, and the UK government didn't want any of this stuff to get out. So, they tried to ban the publication of this book, and it was up to Turnbull, this one, one guy, the young, young lawyer, to try and fight the UK government to win this case. So Turnbull representing the publisher here, he uh, resisted the application, he beat the UK government and at the time, this was one of the highest profile cases ever in Australia and the UK. So Turnbull's profile as a lawyer shot right up. He was on TV all the time, obviously helping him to get a whole bunch of new clients. I mean, if you take on the government, then it's a pretty big deal. But also good for the win-win for Mr. Wright here because all the negative publicity meant that because uh, he was going against the government, he sold a lot more books and mm. Wright died a millionaire through all of it. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good way to sell a book instead mm. get try and get a big government to try and ban it and then fight against it. That extra publicity <laughs> is going to sell a shitload of books. So what we've got here, so a, a quick recap is we've got 
Uh, Malcolm Turnbull is built up. He was building up in journalism. He threw it all away to become a lawyer. He's built up to become a lawyer, uh, building up his own firm. He's representing one of the biggest billionaires in Australia. He's also then taken down the UK government. You think he's on track to be this hotshot lawyer. Uh, and there was calls from everyone and everywhere to come and be this awesome lawyer. But he sort of felt... He's done all he can do. He's won the biggest case in Australian history. What more is there to do? So he threw away his law career and, and did a full side step to, to jump to something else instead. So Malcolm, he set up an investment banking firm, Turnbull and & Partners, and he was basically the guy you call when you've got a big bad problem and you need to secure some kind of deal, any big mergers or anything like that. So he was being the broker for deals that were in the range of half a billion to a billion dollars and anything like that. So Turnbull obviously as the investment banker, he takes a tiny piece of the action for every deal that he makes and it was through Turnbull and Partners, he got filthy rich and made all of his money and got all the power and status that goes along with that. So I think what this whole story illustrates here is the difference between specialization and generalization from a book we did not too long ago, Range by David Epstein, probably my favorite book of the season so far, or one of definitely, definitely up there. But the idea here is that one track you can go down is specialization, and that would mean going to law school, studying law, working your way up from the bottom in law, building up, getting better and better and better, having a 40-year degree in law, you become a specialist in law. Or the other path is generalization which is going wide, bringing together a wide variety of skills. He's gone journalism, he jumped out of that. He went law, got to the top, jumped out of that. He's gone investment banking, made tens of millions or hundreds of millions for his own personal wealth, and he's about to jump out of that as well. So it's a very different path, but each time you might think, if anyone's facing a a real big change in career, you might think, man, I've built up so much credibility here, I've built up so much skills, I've built up my knowledge, I've built up my connections. By abandoning this current track I'm on, I'm going to lose everything and I'm going to be starting again from the bottom. The benefit of that though is that imagine like imagine a 28-year-old or 32-year-old Malcolm Turnbull who's just become you know, one of the biggest lawyers in Australia. Yes, he's thrown away his law career and he's starting from the bottom in investment banking, but he's learning so much quicker than everybody else. He's got a wide range of skills he's bringing together. He's got those awesome connections of a couple of billionaires who, who started funding him. So he's bringing together all these different things. He's not really starting from the bottom. Mm. Yeah, he's building up career capital with every single move and he's not just trading it all into just something completely new like uh, you know, becoming a tourist person on a boat in Southeast Asia where it's not going to be relevant. <laughs> Everything is kind of tied together in some kind of way and he uses that career capital and leverage to launch his career in that new direction. It's a lot like that ABZ planning in the startup of you. Always have your plan A which you're working on now and, but at the same time, you always need that plan B, just searching for that new kind of side hustle, that new opportunity that might be a little bit out of left field. And then if you're always searching for that, every now and then there will be an opportunity to take that next step and all of a sudden your plan B is your new plan A. So as we mentioned, he's gone wide, he's developed a lot of skills, he's done a wide range of things. One big deal he had as an investment banker, he had a half a million dollar investment in Oz Email one of the big Australian tech startups. He turned that into, for him personally, his side of the deal, he got $60 million worth when they sold just before the the tech bubble burst, which was probably good timing. Mm. But basically, he's got to this point now, he's 47 years old, he's made as much money as he could ever need or ever want, and he's achieved this financial independence that he'd worked really hard for, and he'd finally achieved it. So he thought to himself, what do I do next? And he decided that he should try and do his best to make Australia better. He wanted to make it a fairer nation, a place where more people could have the same opportunities that he had. So he entered into politics. 
And you can tell straight away his background is going to be very different to everyone else's being career politicians. I mean, he's already achieved his power, his status, all his money, and all the other politicians he's going to play the game with. I mean, they haven't achieved any of that. They're getting mm. all their status and power through their career in politics only. So his background's very different. It's probably a good thing and a bad thing. It's probably maybe a good one to ask him in that he doesn't need to go deep and down and dirty and fight hard and cling to different values or opinions or play the games as much as the career politicians need to. So maybe it's a, a good thing that he's able to be a bit more objective and focus mm. on the values. Maybe it's a bad thing that he's not as strongly driven as you know these guys who are really playing hard. Playing hard and they could just cut your throat off at, at moment's <laughs> notice, which we'll learn about soon. So 2005, he was a member of Wentworth. Not long later in 2006, he was on the backbench, appointed by John Howard as the parliamentary secretary. And then in 2007, Kevin Rudd, big Kevin 07, who we remember here in Australia, he won the election and then Howard's 11-year era was over. So someone had to take his spot and there was sitting Big Malk, Big Malk style, sitting there with his good skill stack, range of different skills, very different to all the other politicians. And at this point, he was elected. So in a very short time, he became leader of the opposition, which was actually one day after the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008 in the big GFC. As far as the world of politics goes, that's a meteoric rise in a short couple of years, going from not even any interest in politics to eventually becoming leader of one of the two big parties. As the first thing he wanted to do when he was leader was really to reaffirm the Liberal Party's position on climate change policy. It was something that John Howard had been working towards when he was PM and it was something though that was around the world this subtle rise of climate change denialism was starting to pop up around this time. Yeah, we've seen it before in the tobacco industry going against the, the science about what causes lung cancer. Here in the resources sector, he says people like the Koch brothers, or is it Kosh? Uh, could be either. We'll call you with Koch. We'll Koch, go with Koch. Coke, Koch. Coke, I think it is, by memory. <laughs> and Gina Reinhart here in Australia. That's not David Koch, Koshy Koch, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Australian Koch man. But, uh, you know, they support all the skeptical scientists out there like Ian Palmer, Bob Carter, Jennifer Marohase. Uh, which is, you know, when your brother or your cousin who is that climate change denialist, they send you a message about some <laughs> scientist who's saying shit. It's probably one of those three, right, who are the full denialists. Basically, the right-wing Murdoch media, both in Australia and the US, they started to become climate change denialists at this time. And voices like here in Australia, we've got Andrew Bolt and News Corp and Alan Jones and, and they became louder and louder and they recycled a growing flood of anti-climate action propaganda. So Turnbull says that while in the early days Rupert Murdoch was saying the planet deserves the benefit of the doubt and we should be doing something about it, there's been this shift over time. And whilst it didn't necessarily shift the public opinion, Turnbull says what it did shift was the aggressive minority within the Liberal Party. So the ultra-conservatives were becoming ultra, ultra, ultra-conservative. So there was this small group of people that were influenced by the, the big media and the big billionaires in the resource industry, and they became so strong that saying, actually, maybe this climate change thing is just all a hoax. So even though Turnbull here is taking on Howard's agenda of an emissions trading scheme, which in a roundabout way is a carbon tax, but he was seen as a warmest who believed in taking action on greenhouse gas emissions like he's, you know, he's, he's an idiot almost. So supported by the right-wing media who were getting money from the resources industry, they started supporting those on the far, far right 
and coordinating a leadership spill to bring Tony Abbott in. So Tony Abbott was the person that Malcolm Turnbull defeated in the in the first go at the leadership, but now he's come back a few years later after a bit of you know degradation of Malcolm and his character and his leadership. They've got to the point where they're ready for another vote. And so after this very quick build up from outside politics to becoming the leader of the opposition, he's also gone just as quickly down the other side. He's gone from the leader of the opposition, he's lost his whole government and he's just been turfed out. Mm. It says a lot about politics, I think, this whole story here. If you're someone who's coming in and your whole career and status depends on moving up the ladder and someday, hopefully, your dream of becoming PM, you've got this right-wing Murdoch media here and if you don't do exactly what they say, then all of a sudden their media is going to give you a very bad spin to the public and then it's going to affect your career ambitions. So Turnbull here, his status wasn't tied to what happened in politics, so he could hang on to his integrity and, and kind of serve the values in terms of mitigating the risks of climate change. So he was right open to attack for the whole right-wing media. So at this point, he initially beat Abbott to become the leader. Now he's lost to Abbott. For anyone in Australia, they know there's more Abbott coming. This chapter's not closed yet. But at this point, he's been turfed out. He's no longer the leader of the opposition. And he was really considering exiting politics altogether. He's had a crack at it, but he was actually thrown into this deep depression at this time. He never had any mental health worries in his whole life. He thought, you know, mental health issues, some people have it, but that's something for others to worry about, not for me. But for the first time in his life, he actually had suicidal thoughts and he was a he kept a diary and he refers in the book back to some of his diary entries saying that you know maybe suicide it's a long-term solution to a short-term problem but maybe that's the easiest way out he was sinking further and further and further into this depression so at one stage when he decided to leave politics he actually thought that's the wrong way to go and he went back in there and he realized that this is the only thing that can wrestle him out of his depression he said, staying in politics, let me get mental equilibrium and pull me back from this dark abyss. So he went into the Abbott government as the Minister for Communications following the 2013 election. At this point, he wasn't at all thinking about getting back to the top. He just wanted to play his role. He realized that working was something that was going to give him a bit of men- mental clarity and a bit of mental sanity. And so he really wanted to work hard, unlike you know, we've interviewed Kevin Rudd before. The story is that Kevin Rudd, he got ousted by Julie Gillard and he was still uh, bitter and he was still feuding away behind the scenes. He was always undermining and he always had aspirations to claw it back. Turnbull was saying here, from his own perspective, that wasn't his intention. His intention here was really just to, to get back to work, really. But when he was sitting there, he watched his leader, Tony Abbott, and uh, this man was a very incompetent man as PM, according to Malcolm and perhaps <laughs> myself as well. <laughs> But, uh, you know, Abbott was saying things like, oh, we have the beheadings, the mass executions, the crucifixions, the sexual slavery, all in the name of religion. We've seen our fellow Australians succumb to this lure of this death cult. I mean, talking about uh, Muslims and the Islam culture there, and you can imagine all the Muslims in Australia going, who the fuck, who's this dude? And it's just playing right into the hands of the Muslim terrorists, right? He's saying that to all the young people who's part of our culture, they hate you. They will never accept you. You aren't really Australian. Join us and strike against the infidels who hate you and your religion. So obviously all this was, in Malcolm's point of view, a point of national security, right? Abbott was putting fuel on the fire for terrorism, which was objectively an issue around the world, especially at that time. 
Yeah, Turnbull felt the need to do a lot of. It was, you said it was a minister of communication. Yeah, mm. he felt the need to do a lot of patching over uh, a lot of shit that Tony Abbott was saying, and I think a lot of other people in the Liberal Party felt similar things. They've got this leader who was seen as this crazed person who's saying all this uh, very, um, very politically incorrect stuff, especially for a politician, especially for the leader of mm. a country, and so they really felt that they had to do a lot of patchwork and say, no, he, he didn't really mean that. What he actually meant was this, or maybe he, uh, maybe he got confused. Maybe he's talking about something. There was, anyway, there was a lot of covering up. There was of a lot of rogue. I remember. Do you remember when Abbott he uh, he brought in a knighting knight knighthood? Mm. He, he started trying to knight people in Australia and all this kind of thing, and just the general population. Like, who is this wild man? Well, he knighted uh, the Queen's husband. Yeah. Prince Philip, this ninety, this mid nineties guy who I'm not sure. I'm no sure one knew who he was. <laughs> Everyone knows who he is. I don't know what he. I don't know what he did for for Australia necessarily though. But there was, uh, I think Abbott probably did things that helped himself, but also did a lot of things that didn't help himself. He was often running up and down the beach in his budgie smugglers. <laughs> he was eating onions, whole raw onions with the skin on on TV. Mm. Sort of, he's become very much a character that's very easy to attack. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> he gave that wink when uh, someone mentioned a sex worker. Did, they? <laughs> Did you see that? I don't remember that. It was, a, it was on the radio. Someone mentioned about a, someone's mother who was a sex worker calling oh. in. And it was a sad story and... As soon as they mentioned sex work, Abbott, you gave the wink gave to the radio presenter. Oh, he, thought, he thought he was getting away with it because he was just on radio. Yeah. Fuck, that's so anyway, not PM material. And that's why a lot. some people in the Liberal Party, they thought, all right, we need to get him out. And it was actually Scott Morrison, who was the biggest supporter of Malcolm Turnbull at this stage, wanting to push out Abbott and bring in Turnbull in because he thought he was more competent. So, Scotty here, a career politician, he knew how to get things done in politics so, he had his minions, part of the Liberal Party, and he was shoring all of those people up to get ready for this leadership spill to get rid of Abbott. And Morrison at the time, Malcolm says, was playing a duplicitous game. Like, publicly, he was protesting support to Abbott and probably telling to Abbott's face, hey, mate, I'm supporting you. But behind closed doors, he was actually playing a different game and trying to undermine and get rid of Abbott to get Turnbull in. I think, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm probably confusing stuff. There's so many different leadership spills going on in this book, but I think that Morrison even voted for Abbott, but at the same time got told everybody else, don't vote for Abbott. He was just doing it almost uh, to show that, you know, he's, he's sort of got a foot in both camps, but really behind the scenes, he's really all, all for one person. So after all this, there was a leadership spill and Malcolm Turnbull had enough support and everyone wanted him in at that stage because a lot of the public, the general, you know, general population, they loved Turnbull as well and they thought he was going to give him the best chance at winning the next election. And Scott Morrison at this stage, he was appointed treasurer. So he got a good bump up in pay rise and uh, a better position also. So during this period, Malcolm has now been voted in by his own party as a Prime Minister of Australia. As we said, Scott Morrison was doing a lot of the work behind the scenes and he's slotted himself into a good position. Now, during this time, Scott was the briefer to the media. He was building a lot of relationships. He was controlling a lot of the narrative that was coming out from the government. And he used to call this like tilling the soil. He's preparing the soil. He's seeding the media. He's spreading the word, getting ready for... Uh, you know, Scotty is a marketing man, so he was really getting ready for any big announcements that were coming. He would start to drop little hints and really prepare the media and in turn prepare the Australian public so that things would be seen favourably. But he was leaking all the things that he shouldn't have been linking about what the government was actually up to. And he had this exchange constantly between the media. He'd give them good political stories behind closed doors that he's not meant to share and he'd be rewarded with favourable coverage so the rest of the Australian public would start to like Scotty more. So well played. It's probably a good time to drop in this 
quote from Winston Churchill. He was giving advice to a young politician and the, the, the young bloke was asking him, you know, what, what do we do about our enemy over there on the other side of the aisle? But Churchill said, no, that's, not, that's the opposition. Our enemy is actually behind us. And so I think that's very poignant in, uh, in politics the enemy is not on the other side. The enemy is really in your own party. There's Even if you might think it's two different people going to war against each other, there's actually a whole lot of infighting and a whole lot of, of, of politicking in politics, I guess. That mm. <laughs> makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right, especially in Malcolm's place when he's got his own sort of values and the rest of his party, you've got different ones. And they're in some way an enemy, so he's good to bring the enemies alongside and try and have the same vision with them all. So it was a very tough time as a PM, but Malcolm Turnbull, he actually got a few things done. So he got some big tax reforms in, in Australia. He moved things forward with energy storage, things like uh, Snowy Hydro. He got the same-sex marriage over the line. And he also beat Donald Trump, the man who wrote Art of the Deal, the negotiation master. He beat him in a negotiation about refugees in Nauru at the time to give the best outcome for those human beings. So no doubt he got a lot done, but at the same time, that far right, in his words, terrorists, which he called them, they still were planning and conspiring along with the media to blow everything up for him. So whilst he was achieving a lot of these things, there was something that really he could never escape, and that was uh, the climate change denialists, the the very strong and vocal minority that had got him the first time around. And this climate change stuff was something that Malcolm Turnbull felt very, very strongly about, something he was committed to. Uh, we've, we saw around this time that Donald Trump had pulled out of this Paris Agreement, but Turnbull was very strong. Whilst there was that small vocal minority that was urging Australia to pull out as well, Malcolm Turnbull was very strong in saying, no, Renewable energy is an absolute must-have. We really need to be focused on cutting our emissions. So it's all about trying to increase business certainty through the National Energy Guarantee for in Australia. So, you know, businesses, they know what's coming. They know what changes are coming so they can invest for a longer-term horizon. So, you know, he had these aspirations, but then at the same time, the other people in the Liberal Party had different values and different ideas about what the future should look like. And again, it was his arch nemesis, the great budgie smuggler, <laughs> Tony Abbott, right? And he was leading the far right party room alongside the coordinated attack again with the Murdoch right media, who in a roundabout way, uh, Malcolm says, was funded by the fossil fuel industry, whose businesses were going to be absolutely cannibalized by renewable energy if all this investment was going in that direction. So one of the 48 laws of power tells us, Law 15, we need to crush our enemy totally. And this is not what Turnbull did. He obviously had a few run-ins with Abbott. He allowed Abbott to remain after he'd uh, crushed him almost totally, but not quite. Abbott's still uh, doing his work in the background. And it, it also harks back to, as we said, Rudd and Gillard, where Gillard overthrew Rudd, but she didn't crush him totally. And he stuck around long enough to undermine her and, and really win it back. So here, Turnbull's fallen victim to the same thing. He's violated that law. He didn't crush his enemy totally. He's allowed him to remain around long enough to undermine Turnbull. Yeah, Robert Greene says, All great leaders since Moses have known that a feared enemy must be crushed completely. If one small ember is left alight, no matter how dimly it smoulders, a fire will eventually break out. The enemy will recover and will seek revenge, crush him not only in body but in spirit. And the solution here, you need to have no mercy. Do not take their hatred personally. Crush your enemies as totally as they would crush you. Ultimately, the only peace and security you can hope for in your enemies is their disappearance. So he could have been a bit harder. He could have got rid of Abbott, I think, uh, when he came back in as PM. He allowed Abbott to remain as that smouldering ember 
and then over time, over a few years, that amber grew and grew and grew and was flamed by, again, the other on the right and the Murdoch media and that was what got rid of Turnbull in the end. So Malcolm Turnbull's final play, he saw the writing on the wall. He knew that he was ultimately going down uh, but one thing he wanted to ensure was he wanted to ensure some kind of succession plan that was favourable at least to himself but more importantly to the Australian public. He was very strong in saying that he didn't want one of those small vocal minority, one of those extreme uh, conservatives to become the leader of the nation. So he made it really his mission to not allow those people in and he got his good mate Scotty from marketing, Scott Morrison. He made sure that maybe, I'm, I'm sure in Turnbull's eyes, Turnbull would have thought I'm better than Scotty but mm. he knew that Scotty was better than Abbott or Dutton or any of those other extreme conservatives. So the writing's on the wall. Scotty Morrison here, he's the treasurer at the moment and he's thinking, how should I play this? And Scott had his minions on the team, right? So he could have swung what happened either way. So he told Malcolm to his face, mate, I'm supporting you. I'm all about you. And if that was the case, his minions would have voted against the spill and Malcolm Turnbull would still be in power. So even though Scott was saying that, they looked at the spill numbers and the votes were 45 for the spill and 40 against. So at this stage, it was pretty clear to Malcolm Turnbull that Scotty, he was playing a double game here. He was saying to Malcolm and publicly that he's supporting him, but he was actually doing the opposite. And this was exactly the same thing he did when he brought mm. Turnbull in against Abbott. So Morrison, he played it pretty well. He was the natural successor and he was friends with Turnbull all the way to the end, probably the only one that was supporting him. But at the same time, he was doing the right thing by the right media. So if we're pulling again at the 48 Laws of Power, I think uh, Scott Morrison maybe read that book and he did a few things <laughs> right. Either that or he's just, uh, just a master of it. He just knows. A couple of laws that really spring to mind here. Law 35, master the art of timing. He could have gone early. He could have had a crack you know, five or six years earlier, but he, he really stuck to his strategy and played the long game here, so he mastered the art of timing. Law number 38, think as you like but behave like others, he was always publicly doing the right things. He was always seen to be supporting the people that he needed to be supporting. He was always towing the company line. He was always uh, publicly doing those right things, no matter what he was thinking to himself. And also, Law 14, poses a friend, work as a spy. I think that, just, that, that says it all right there. Yeah, well, he poses a friend and then he was spilling all the media, all <laughs> the stories to the, to the right-wing media, and he was, which is pretty much the definition of a spy, right? Just working on behalf <laughs> of them. And uh, he did that well. And because of that, he ended up very successful and currently the Prime Minister of Australia and probably doing a pretty good job at the moment. Yeah, during a, a, a very tough time. I, I, I would hate to be Prime Minister right now. It's almost impossible to please everyone, especially during times like this. But I think uh, like most mm. leaders around the world today, everyone's given it their best shot and doing what they think is, is going to work in both the short term and the long term and you know something that's in hopefully everyone's best interest. So Malcolm Turnbull, he's got a concluding chapter talking about what he's learned in his whole journey. He says, nothing is more important as character when you're going through life. But the problem is in politics, in that line of work, uh, nothing is really in store for that. If you've got a lot of character, it's probably not going to get you far. <laughs> I suppose it's a bit of a trade-off. Like the character is a good thing to have personally, but you've probably got to sacrifice a bit of character if you want to get to the top. Yeah, in business, you can basically pick and choose who you deal with. In politics, the cast is supported by the electorate and that means you have to work with the people who you didn't pick and at any time they can portray you. So I think uh, in reading this book, man, watching the show like House of Cards, I think that's just a bit of a Hollywood kind of thing and it's not a real thing in, in, and it's not in reality, that's how it works. Mate, this is more House of Cards than House of Cards. It's House <laughs> of Cards, I think, after reading this story. It is all about, for most politicians, career and personal ambition, personal status, personal power 
and there's very little evidence of all the politicians doing things what is objectively true for the country. And I think if you look across at other countries at the moment, like the US, it does uh, support the same narrative. So, as we said at the start, we're interviewing Big Malk and probably during the interview, we won't call him Big Malk. No. We'll probably call him Mr. Turnbull, at least at the very start. Uh, but we want to get a bit of context before we just drop the interview. We want to have a look at his personal journey through life, some of the lessons that we can learn from other books, and then also our first sort of real look into into the, the dark side of politics as well. Mm-hmm. 